Hey, welcome in. It's Downtown the Podcast, episode number 107. From the Zone Radio Studios in Bangor, Maine, Rich Kimball, Carrie Haskell with you. It's where we do our daily show downtown Monday through Friday, 4 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time on Maine's Zone Radio stations. You can hear streaming audio at our website, downtownwithrichkimball.com. This week on the program, well, we talk with a music legend and we talk with the host of a terrific new genealogy series called Roots Less Traveled for Root to Heed coming up in the second half of the podcast this week. But we get things underway by talking with Bruce Coburn, who's been making music for more than 50 years now. Singer, songwriter, tremendous guitarist and an activist as well. Our friend Bruce Pratt joins us in studio for this conversation with Bruce Coburn. Thanks for having me. Nice to talk to you. How are you doing in this time of social isolation? <laughs> doing okay. <laughs> we're all we're all dealing with the, you know this new and exotic uh, situation, but um, yeah, we're we're getting by all right. Exotic. Uh, I like that. Well, yeah. I mean, in the sense that it's not exotic in the pleasurable sense, but it, but certainly in the. Uh, in the sense of being something that's very different from how we've all expected our days to go in the past. So it's, it's, um, you know, we're basically in the same boat as everybody else. And there are three of us, my wife and daughter and I in our apartment in San Francisco, um, 24 (laughs) seven. So, whereas there used to be, uh, space, you know, my, my daughter would go to school and my wife goes to work and, I do my thing through the day, and then, uh, you know, what, we all can reconvene kind of at dinner time. But now it's it's all the time, so it's, that's that's a pretty big change. And we're lucky enough to have a pretty decent sized apartment, and uh, you know, in a neighborhood that's comfortable when we do go out. But uh, but uh, it's still vastly more limited in scope than it than we're used to so uh, you know although i have as i hear myself saying that i realize that we're also getting used to this now after this much time but i'm not not that happy about that to be honest i'd rather not be getting used to it in the midst of all this uh, celebration uh, of your work uh, box set 50th anniversary box set Uh, first of all how amazing is it for an artist to be with the same label for 50 years. That's an incredible record of consistency. You know, I mean, it is actually, I, I, I think it's relatively unusual, maybe not, not quite unique, perhaps it might be unique, but certainly rare in, in the music world that, that a, a relationship like that persists for so long, but um, it's just worked. You know, so there's been never, never been any real reason to want to change it. it, it, it it's, uh, I, for it started because um, Bernie Finkelstein, who, who, for most of those years was the owner of True North Records, um, wanted to start a record label, and I wanted to make an album, and and our mutual friend Gene Martinek wanted to produce, wanted to become a producer. We were all coming out of the sort of the the band era of the 60s. Uh, Bernie had been a manager and Gene had been a guitar player in a couple of bands and and, and I had also. But uh, but I had these songs that that worked 
when I performed them solo better than any of the, of the band stuff that I had done. And I wanted to kind of move forward with that. So, so when the three of us got together and True North Records started and, and my first album was the first album on the label, um, coming out, coming out in 1970. And it, it, Soon after, within it, within the year, even after it came out, it was clear that I needed a manager. Bernie volunteered his services. Well, he didn't exactly volunteer. He suggested that I pay him to do that, and uh, and um, it seemed like a good arrangement. And we still have that arrangement. So, aside from the the oddness <laughs> or of having been with the same label all those years, I've been I've had the same manager all those years also, uh, and so that's kind of anomalous let's say in the music scene but but it's it's just there's been like i said never any reason to really change it when did you start playing the guitar bruce i was 14 uh so that would have been 1959 uh and um i i was into rock and roll in a big way and i really wanted to uh to be to play guitar I hadn't really formed the, the conscious intention, but I, I I just had it as like, oh, I'd be so great to be able to do that. Uh, and then while a house we were, my dad was having built, was as things are generally and haven't changed. I mean, in this respect, the contractor was late on the on the thing, so the house wasn't ready when school started, and the old house we we'd moved out of the other place and blah blah. So. Um, we were staying at my grandmother's house for a couple of months waiting for the new house to be finished. And she, I, I discovered in the attic in a closet in the attic, this old beat up Hawaiian guitar. Um, that, and I, and I it was like, Oh, this is meant to be. I, <laughs> there's a guitar that nobody cares about and I get to have it, you know? So I, I painted gold stars on the top and, uh, <laughs> And you know, posed from in the mirror with it, and and tried to play rock and roll riffs, and without much success. And then, you know, but but my parents could kind of see where this was going, and it's like, okay, look, if you want to take guitar lessons, we'll we'll, or if you want to play the guitar, we will support that. But you have to promise to take lessons and learn to do it properly, and you have to uh, promise that you you won't grow sideburns and get a leather jacket. <laughs> <laughs> So I thought that was a fairly light burden. So I said, yeah, okay, let's do it. And, and uh, so that's, that's where it went. You know, uh, Bruce, this is Bruce. If you, um, you have 50 years with a record label, but you have got established 50 years with a fan base uh, that, that are, that are very, very loyal. I'm, I'm one of those people who, who goes back, liked your music from the start. You, You've done something that I think maybe only Norman Blake and a few other guitar players have done, and that is through for that long be both consistent as a songwriter and consistent as a writer of instrumentals. How do you how do you approach the the fact that 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 you've been able to keep you've been able to change do different things, but you've kept this solid fan base? I think I know why, but I'm wondering what you think. <laughs> Uh, I think I think it's a blessing. <laughs> I don't look at it too hard, but but uh, um, and I'm very I'm grateful for it, and I'm and I'm I, I'm very kind of proud of of that element of my audience that the people have been willing to hang in for that long, um, and through a bunch of changes too. I mean, I it, it, I've tried to be 
the best I can be in in, in musical terms and lyrical terms uh, over those years. But uh, but in the course of that, there have been changes from you know in in, ter- in terms of musical style, in terms of the kind of direction that lyrics have gone, or, or that the kind of the content of songs has gone, and and most of those people have stuck with me all that time. So it's, uh, I'm, uh, like I say, very grateful for that. Well, very few know, people I mean, have the virtuosity on, on the fingerboard and that kind of a thoughtful, introspective way of, of, of making the lyrics fit the, the, the music and the playing. Um, I, I, I learned from my friend Garnet Rogers that you also are a very good marksman. And I was wondering if those two things in your mind somehow worked together. I, I as a guitar player myself, I, I could start to see that when Garnet mentioned it the other day when we were chatting. Uh, you know, I don't. I, I mean, it's interesting that he would say that. But uh, to me, um, I didn't get involved in the, in competitive shooting until the end of well, till the very late '80s, and uh, so it wasn't part of anything that happened before that. But um, but I did discover I, I I actually somewhere sometime in the eighties I can't remember exactly when I lost most of the sight in my left eye because of uh, a fungus infection that I picked up somewhere and um, so I discovered that rather because and I'm left-handed right so I uh, anytime I had tried to do anything involving aim throwing a ball shooting a bow shooting a gun, whatever it was, uh, I, I, I could never hit anything, <laughs> never, <laughs> never get anything to go where I was playing darts, you know, whatever. I mean, you could never get anything to go where I wanted to do. But when I lost the sight in the, in the left eye, because I was assuming that because I was left-handed that I'd be aiming with that eye, I suddenly discovered that I'd been right-eyed all along. And you, that can happen. You can be left-handed and, and right-eyed and whatever. But, um, uh, so I, all of a sudden, I found that I could aim at things and hit them, and it sort of went from there. I, I discovered that a friend of mine who owned a guitar shop that I had frequented for years was into competitive pistol shooting, and, and you know, he said, "Well, why don't you come to the range one day and see what it's like?" And it, that appealed to me for various reasons, and and so I went with him, and sure enough, it was fun, and I just got further into it from there. So, and I spent maybe over a decade, 12 years-ish, uh, quite deeply involved in competitive shooting. And um, then it, I haven't done it for years now, but but uh, that took me through sort of from the late 80s through into the 2000s uh, doing that. And and, uh, and I, I got a lot out of it, actually, I think. And I don't, but I don't know how much of a relationship there is between that and the creative side of of what I do, I I think it was exciting for me to discover a that I could hit something <laughs> that I was aiming at, and b that I actually liked competing when I felt like I could actually pull it off. <laughs> I've I've never seen myself as a competitive person, and I've always avoided any kind of whiff of competitiveness that comes into the music scene, which it does, and not so much among the musicians. And it can be there, but. But more from the business side, it's like, well, you have to sell more records and so and so. What would you? Th- Surely that person who started like ten years after you shouldn't be getting more of an audience than you after all this time. And you hear this stuff from people, 
and uh, and I've always kind of resisted that way of thinking because it seems counterproductive and inappropriate to to what I think music's all about. But uh, uh, but I discovered that there was actually fun to be had on on the level of a game like like the shooting stuff uh, in a competitive way, and and so there was, you know there was a there was discoveries involved. We're talking with Bruce Coburn here on Downtown. Uh, you've been an outspoken activist for your entire career. I heard somebody recently say what we're experiencing now with this COVID-19 pandemic could be a preview of coming attractions because we've failed, certainly here in the United States, we failed to properly address the issue of climate change. Well, that that failure is a pretty much a worldwide one. Um, some countries have made more meaningful gestures than others in that in the direction of addressing that but most of them, most of us haven't and um you know basically we live in a world that that is uh at the service of of transnational corporations global corporations and i mean it's it's not quite a, a feudal system we're we're much better off than than if it were that but it's kind of it, it's in a gentle way, kind of like that. So, you know, the, the aristocracy are these uh, CEOs and their and the and the, the the faceless stockholders, which is a lot of people. I mean, this is the difference between us us and a real feudal system is that a lot of average, quote unquote, people own stock in these corporations and want to want to get paid on that, but uh, and expect to. But the fact is that that is i think the biggest single factor in, in in keeping everybody from addressing environmental issues and or even from acknowledging there are such things uh, you know because they all that money plays a very strong propaganda game for one thing they can buy scientists and they do and and they can buy politicians and they do and uh etc you know i mean whether it's overt or just kind of a systemic relationship that exists between money and politics, et cetera. Um, that's, it, it works like that. So, so we're, so basically nobody's doing enough. Uh, and, and we probably won't because I don't see that system changing. Although it's taking a little bit of a hit right now with the virus going around and everything, but, but I don't think the hit is going to be big enough to, uh, to actually change the system, I'm not sure what the system should be. I don't have, I don't have a, an agenda that way, or I, I'm not promoting any particular set of ideas. I just think that it's pretty obvious that the way things, that, that keeping on running things the way we have been, is going to result in 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 much bigger disasters than what we're currently looking at. Bruce, we've enjoyed your music for many, many years and, and appreciate all you do uh, using your platform to try and make the world a better place. We really appreciate you making time for us this afternoon and to wish you continued good health and success. Well, thank you very much for that. And it's, it's yeah, nice to spend the time with you. Bruce Coburn with us here on Downtown, the podcast. We'll take a break. A word from Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. 
And then we talk with Farouk Tahid of the NBC series, Roots Less Travel. Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in New England. With the network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit CrossInsurance.com. Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Seems like an appropriate song here from Bruce Coburn as the podcast continues. Don't the hours grow shorter as the days go by? guest on the podcast is the host of a brand new genealogy series that airs on NBC as well as Hulu. He also is the former ringside announcer for BattleBots. We had a wonderful time talking with Farouk Tahid recently. Farouk, thanks so much for being with us. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. I really appreciate you. Love the show so much, and, and it's such a great concept. And there are you know, there are a number of, of genealogy shows out there on television, but Roots Less Traveled takes a very different approach. Absolutely. We take uh, two family members that are distant for one reason or another, uh, whether it's time, meaning generationally, we had a you know a grandfather and a grandson, or we have it by distance. We had a, a daughter and a father who live on opposite coasts here in the States. And so we bring them together and we help them explore the myths and legends. You know, we all got stories in our in our family history. So we help them explore that and confirm or deny whether those myths or legends are real. And then I take them on what I like to call a genealogical treasure hunt to help them discover their family ancestry. And, and as we all learn, as we explore our past, as so many of us are, are tied to various elements of history, and there's always that component. It's not just family history, but they, usually there's a connection to our own American history. Indeed, and that's what you see a lot on our show on Roots Less Travel. You definitely see a lot of these personal journeys, but then you see the personal journeys really give us some insight and and you know, into our own American history. Of course, you've also got uh, the uh, inside help there of your sponsors, the folks at Ancestry.com, and, and what they're doing is incredible, and the resources they're able to provide, it must be fun for you to kind of watch it all come together. Really, it's just, I mean, I just get to sit back. I don't have to do all the work, because let me tell you, the work they put into it is amazing. It's it's The value in it is just insurmountable, because, I mean, to just research one family tree, one lineage down one side uh, could take anywhere from 600 to 800 man hours. So, or should I say man and woman hours, a lot of people hours. So it could take a lot of time to really research that. And they do a great job. Why do you think it is that, that people have become so interested in, in learning about their family's history? Because this is, well, there have always been people who've wanted to know about their family tree, but that seemed to increase a lot in recent years. I think I think as we get older, you know, specifically speaking for myself, as I get older, you know, you, you're looking for more reasons to to kind of maybe looking for your purpose or you're looking for just some reasons as to why you're doing what you're doing. And when you get the chance to go down your family tree, you get to have a lot of those answers solved. I mean, so much 
so much is embedded in our DNA and so much is embedded in how we live our lives that, that stem from what our ancestors and, and previous relatives have gone through. Hey, has doing the show made you curious at all about your own family's history? It, it, without a doubt. I have done some research on my own and have gone down my family line. I've run into some pitfalls. I'm kind of stuck on my maternal side of the family when I'm when, you know, around my grandmother um, trying to find out some some little tips and think, tricks to get past this little roadblock here. But I did have something crazy happen to me during this time. Um, right around the time I got the show, I had a cousin who was married to my female cousin on my dad's side. So he was my cousin-in-law. And he did an ancestry uh, DNA test kit. He found his biological father. And by that, he found his biological grandfather. Well, it turns out his grandfather was my grandmother's brother. Wow. And so, right. And so with that, it turned out that my, I had a cousin on my dad's side, marry a cousin on my mom's side. And I just didn't know he was my cousin. He was my cousin before he was my cousin-in-law. So it was great. <laughs> That's wonderful. Well, I get a story happened to me and I, I knew some details, but not much, but I ended up uh, connecting with four sisters uh, they didn't know anything about me, and I, I didn't know that they all existed, and Ancestry.com was a big part of that. And, and since that happened to me, I, it's hard to tell you how many people I've talked to who've had that experience of finding uh, family members they never never knew about through Ancestry.com. Yeah, we had, we had that very, very thing happen with our first episode with Rob and Michelle. They were— Oh, that you know, was—I was, love that episode. That was great. Yeah, Rob— Rob was adopted, and he didn't know he had all this family. He didn't even know about his Mexican heritage, and we were able to, you know, he he found um, Michelle three years ago on Ancestry, but they had never been together just one-on-one -on -one like this, and we were really able to, to just really give them a really impactful and valuable uh, family history there that was amazing. I mean, a real-life Titanic story, links to John F. Kennedy, who could ask for anything more? Well, yeah, and I, I love the trip to Havana, Cuba. That was a wonderful story as well. Yeah, we I love that that time being able to go to Cuba. I mean, we were in and out. You know, we were only there for about three or four days. But just being able to experience that culture and then to have, you know, that uncle and nephew team of 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 JR and Uncle Al, like it was just it was just an amazing, amazing time. And you know, your Uncle Al, he's a fun, fun loving guy. He was so emotional about Cuba and how much uh, real estate and stuff that his ancestor had committed to, to transforming Cuba. It was amazing. And, and there are so many poignant moments in this series. I think I was most moved uh, by the episode when you traveled uh, down to Nashville and found out about uh, the role that family members uh, had played of your guests in uh, a very important court case in American history. Indeed. And, and that was that one for me probably was what was the most impactful because I didn't expect to have the emotional response that I had being there and uh, learning that history, because that that piece of history there wasn't taught to us. You know, it was it was uh, mm. Devon and Cherie and their ancestors were enslaved um, in this country, but they were given one hundred and eleven acres out of one hundred and twelve from the person that they were that worked the, that the land they worked. And so going to court and then five, six times and having um, it upheld in their favor uh, in the South pre-emancipation, just, just an amazing story. We got chills bumped just talking about it now. We're talking with Farouk Tahid of Roots Less Traveled here on Downtown. Well, we couldn't, we couldn't have you on the show, Farouk, without bringing up 
your role in one of our favorite shows. Can you talk about your time working ringside for BattleBots? It's robot fighting time! <laughs> yes, yes, BattleBots. I, I mean, I love BattleBots. Uh, just, just not only for the people and the bot builders and everybody behind it, because the passion that they have for what they do uh, just really fuels me and gives me fire to go in there and be able to put on the performance that I can do because I'm just able to go there and just be myself and be as crazy and wild as I want to be. And it's just really, truly become a dream, a dream job. Now, now did you pick up any, any skills through uh, osmosis there working with those creative people? Uh, can you, can you make some of those things now in the, in the workshop? Now that I haven't been able, I haven't been back in the pits yet to, to start building and working on the robots. I would love to get it back there one day, but they're so busy and it's moving so fast trying to get those robots prepared for battle that I wouldn't even try to step back there. Just just me being back there is a safety hazard. <laughs> <laughs> hey, now you also had a role, uh, although we didn't see you, but we heard you and your very distinctive voice uh, in a series done by our friend Mark Duplass. You did an episode of Room 104. Oh, yes, absolutely. Yeah, I did an episode of uh, Room 104. I believe I was planning a, a boxing announcer as they were watching on TV. <laughs> uh, yeah, that was that was a lot of fun. That was a lot of fun. Well, uh, we love the series Roots Less Traveled. It's such a wonderful trip. And, and unlike uh, so many of these shows, uh, these are not celebrities. These are just real folks learning about their family's history and American history at the same time. And, and you make a, a wonderful guide for their journey, Farouk. We wish you continued success with the show and, and your career. And thanks for joining us here this afternoon. Thank you very much. And to all your listeners, I appreciate you guys. And don't forget, Roots Less Travel was the last episode coming up. It will be rerunning all summer long, so check it out. Absolutely. Thank you, Farouk. We appreciate it. Thank you, guys. That's Farouk Tahid of Roots Less Travel and BattleBots, of course. Thanks to Farouk, and thanks to the wonderful Bruce Coburn for joining us this time around. And we hope you'll join us next time, too, on Downtown the Podcast, brought to you by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength.